0: This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. To buy when there's blood in the streets, uh. Lift up, check under the carpet. Many types if you become master of the mock market. Well, Matt Williams, thanks so much for coming on uh, on Masters of the Market. I really appreciate your time. And uh, I thought before we get into it, I thought it would just be good to introduce Early Funds Management and uh, and how you guys look to invest.
1: Yeah, well, thanks, Chris. Um, and it's good to see another bloke who takes a similar haircut view to myself. <laughs> I think uh, it's a very underrated hair, uh, hairstyle. I think it's a choice, Matt, isn't got. it? It's a choice. It is. We, we of choose it is. to keep it short. Yeah, yeah. I could have a mullet if I wanted, but choose right. not to.
0: That's right.
1: Um, yeah, thanks, mate. Uh, look, early uh, Funds Management was started by John Seviour. John Sevior and I used to work at Perpetual for over 20 years. Um, and John started Early uh, as a boutique funds manager, focused on the institutional market in 2012. Uh, myself and Emma Fisher joined in 2016. Uh, we're the co-managers of the Early Australian Share Fund, a retail-focused uh, fund. And in 2018, we merged with Magellan uh, Funds Management, the listed ASX uh, company, and, um, and we've been with them uh, ever since, which, which has been a really successful um, partnership. Uh, we've, we've, uh, we've really enjoyed our time uh, with, with Magellan, who have d- taken off all those boring things that we used to have to worry about, um, but very important things, regulatory, compliance, finance, legal, and Magellan have world-class operations, and now we can just concentrate on investing.
0: And you mentioned there your time at at Perpetual, which was, you know, a huge success story in terms of Australian funds management businesses. Maybe start to to paint a picture for the viewer, just how big Perpetual and how quickly it grew during your time there, and then maybe a little bit of colour about what you were like when you entered the building to to what your frame of mind was when you left. Yeah, well...
1: um... Yeah, Perpetual, I joined in the early 90s, straight out of university. And look, if I wasn't wearing short pants, uh, you know, literally, I was certainly wearing short short pants figuratively. I really didn't know much uh, about, about anything. And I can contrast that to some of the younger people we hire today who I, I, I find it chalk and cheese. I think I was very, um, uh, you know, the, the quality of the younger people today coming uh, coming through is really blows me away. You know, I think they're, they're, they're amazing. And I think back to my time in the early 90s. So the recession was sort of just ending. Um, I was looking for a job out of uni, just took the first job I could get. And I ended up in the perpetual back office, uh, you know, in settlements, in admin. And I was sitting there one lunchtime uh, and over this newfangled thing called email system came a job, internal job ad- advertisement for the dealer. Uh, in the fledgling funds management business, which was upstairs in, at the, in the building at the time. And I thought, this sounds, this sounds promising. I'm quite interested in the market. Um, I was interested in business. And so I put my hand up for that job. And very luckily, uh, Peter Morgan and John Murray, who were the, uh, the bosses of the, of the fledgling funds management business, uh, took me on. And so I started my career uh, as a dealer uh, which is sort of what
0: executing trades that's it the guys. Yeah. so you the decisions you're,
1: yeah you're talking to the market you're talking to the brokers you're finding out what lines of stock are around you are you're then talking that to the portfolio managers and the analysts and they will give you that and the portfolio managers will say let's you know well matt let's buy um this cba that's just been privatized commonwealth bank we quite like this it looks too good to be true in fact <laughs> uh and so we were you know we're buying a lot of uh, combank in the first installment it
0: and what was that what was combank trading for after that got privatized
1: out of the uh, well were, I think they privatized it in a few installments if I remember correctly so the first installment was only a few dollars amazing so yeah. you know amazing um, and uh, you know the, the the great retail investors who hung onto that stock you know with the dividends and everything through thick and thin um, have done so fantastically well so that was the kind of that was my job at the time. And then I loved it. You know, I absolutely uh, got obsessed with it. Uh, you know, reading all the books that I was that they that the fund managers and the other analysts kindly threw at me to read, and then looking at companies. And so it developed from there. I became an analyst, uh, and during this time, Perpetual, which really started off uh, managing internal money, uh, then we we developed this expertise. John Sevior, who I mentioned, who founded Early. Uh, he had joined not long after me we, we developed a great rapport together um, and a lot of discussions about stocks and so from that period long story short but perpetual really got a, a snowball effect a lot of external clients the, the big super funds were just starting to get get going uh, and it became it went from you know a one to two billion dollar internally managed fund so you know the perpetual's history has been, uh, private deceased estates uh corporate trust um but the a lot of the private money was managed internally and then we turned externally we turned we went from 2 billion uh in the early 90s to uh you know i think roughly 35 billion uh at some point so it was a great journey uh you know we 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 had a lot of fun um and but it was just a great time and very lucky i felt really lucky to join the industry at that point and um, uh, it's just been a great experience.
0: And who were your strongest mentors during those years at Perpetual?
1: Yeah, I mentioned John Savior and obviously Pete Morgan, um, who who hired me. And but Pete, uh, uh, he he ultimately left and formed his own business, a successful funds management firm uh, with Sue Ellen uh, uh, Henry. Um, and, uh, and so he went off. So John and I really really took up the ball and ran ran with it. And uh, you know, you you. So John's been a, a real mentor of mine, and also a friend. And you know, it's it's someone we, uh, you know, you don't work with someone for over twenty years if you don't get on. And we 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 sort of, I think, we bounce well off each other. Um, it's been a good relationship where we can have honest, very honest conversations with each other, uh, and um, and and it's really very helpful. I think as a fund manager to keep that you've got that balance. You've got that check. Someone who's check you and go, tell you, you know, tell you you're absolutely wrong uh, or or vice versa, back you up and make you make you conviction even stronger. So he's been a great uh, a great foil. I think we've been a great foils for each other.
0: How do you go about, particularly maybe when you were younger, perpetually, you got a lot of really smart, fund managers there. How did you manage when you had an idea that you had conviction on and someone who was more experienced and potentially smarter than you said no? That's stupid. Were you able to stick with it and maintain your conviction, or were you able to get swayed by the more experienced, you know, potentially more intelligent investor?
1: Oh, yeah, I think you would listen to all ideas. Um, you know, it's been described to me investing is like uh, someone gives you a, a, th- a box with a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle on the front. It says there's thousand pieces in this box, but you open the box and there's actually only two hundred you've got to make up the, the investing picture the best way you can. And you find your little pit, you find your little pieces wherever you may find them. You'll never get a complete idea. So you've got to listen to all voices. Um, but at the end of the day, you've got to put those pieces together. You're not going to have the thousand. You're only going to have a couple of hundred and you've got to make your own decision yeah. and you've got to stick with that. Sometimes you're right yeah, you say someone comes in and says, you know, that piece is wrong. You've got, you've, you're reading that the wrong way. It doesn't go here. It doesn't go there. Forget it. So, You've got to take all comers, but at the you know all all, all opinions. But at the end of the day, you've got to develop your own style, uh, your own conviction, and what we describe as your own anchor. Mm. And I think that's an important uh, thing for investors, young investors, to come through. Who you've got to develop an anchor. Well, what what do you really believe in uh, as an investor? And what would your um,
0: anchor be as an investor?
1: Yeah, I think our anchor, so, well, my anchor, sort of has developed th- around our process. I've really bought into the perpetual process, and really, what we've developed it early is just a derivative from wh- from what that was um, uh, in the day. But I think it's changed a little bit. I think I was my anchor back in the when I first started was all about. I thought this was a game you could you could scientifically win. You could do the maths. And you would come up with an answer, and it'd be the right answer. And then over time, you realise that's not that's not it. You know, valuation and being a value investor was a lot about maths, uh, crunching the numbers, price to book. You know, is this what's the what's the what's the values in the in the in the private market? Uh, in an era a-
0: where information wasn't as readily available, and in an era where monetary policy was much more stable, wasn't it? Exactly.
1: So it was a much more desktop kind of. Uh, analysis, I think, of you know breaking down what the information the companies gave out and and and, and analyzing that uh, in a very maths valuation based framework. But I think over the years, and the, and also this has been a function of the the, the economies in the uh, uh, in the companies, is that you, the most value my anchor has shifted to more quality businesses because the maths, the valuation, being value investor, and particularly in the last five, six, seven years, as we all know, as interest rates have been crunched, you know, the prices you can pay for company justifiably are higher Mm. because growth is more valuable uh, in a a low interest rate environment. And so you can pay higher multiples. So thank goodness, really, over that time, that journey of changed and my anchor is much more around quality and also about how management uh, can affect things. Uh, I really didn't understand when I first started out uh, as a young investor w- w- what what really management, what good management looked like. I had no idea. Um, but over the years, you really get that sixth sense of good managers and how they can influence um, outcomes.
0: And is it something you admire, that flexibility or evolution, something you admire in other investors? You know, there's so often where you even... Uh, Warren Buffett or, or Charlie Munger, you know, probably the two best, or two of the very best value investors of all time. They've missed so many of the growth opportunities because they haven't been able to evolve, and it's and they have underperformed the market for an extended period of time. It's not taking anything away from their brilliance, but have you seen many people that can be really strong in one style of investing, e.g., value, but when circumstances change, be able to flip that and be really strong? In terms of a different style of investing, or do you think most people are more suited to one style over another?
1: Yeah, look, I can't I can't talk for too many others, I, uh, you know, that I haven't worked with. But I think, as when I first started as an investor, as I said, you know, I knew nothing really. I was so inexperienced. But you've got to grow. You've got to learn. You've yeah. got to grow your thinking. Um, you've got to always challenge your thinking. Um, and going back to that, you know comment about you know, hiring younger people and bringing them through. That's what's really worked for us, uh, myself and John, is surrounding ourselves with really smarter, younger people who make us think differently, challenge our sort of uh, preconceived notions and always just keeping your, your, your mind open and, and your mind fresh to, to new ways of, of looking at things. And so that's how I think I've developed and I think John, uh, to the same extent, is is, is much more is, is the same. Although he's much more wedded back to that valuation, he mm. he's got a strong discipline around that valuation, uh, which has worked for him. It's worked nicely for him. But he's I think compared to me, he's a he's a lot more uh, disciplined on the valuation front. But the other guy I've observed, and uh, you know, look, he pays the bill, so I'm you know g- going to give him a plug. But Hamish Douglas, who, you know, amazingly. Turned himself from an investment banker into a great investor who, who is you know, who over the years has been very flexible in his thinking, mm. and um, has judged the market um, uh, superbly. In, in and and the, and the way he's he, he's picked stocks, uh, you know, has been quite amazing, amazing to watch, and has built a you know a fantastic business on the back of that.
0: And that that's something I've asked a lot of people that come on. It's that. Do you agree with that idea that there isn't one right or wrong way to invest? There's just a right or wrong way to invest for your skill set and your circumstances?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's no right or, or wrong way. But I guess what happens is the, the risk that uh, where things go wrong is when you deviate from your, the things that have worked for you, the things that you, uh, uh, you know, your, your, your anchor, if you like. If you start to deviate from your process, That that's attached to your anchor, then that's where you see people get lose lose ground, and uh, they lose. If you lose conviction in why you own a company or why you don't own a company, you you can really you know the the ground can really fall uh, away from you, and you know clients are very I think very understanding. When you've explained why you're in a stock or why you're not in a stock, because of the reasons that you give and the the anchor you have, the process that's around that, and they'll understand that. If you know when things aren't going as well as you'd like, but it's when you change your spots to a you know without explanation, I think that's when you get into a bit of trouble.
0: And uh, I've heard Emma Fisher talk really eloquently before about founder-led businesses and Mm. why you early like investing in them. Maybe talk us through why you think that's an important thing to invest alongside and perhaps what some of the data has shown that you've uncovered.
1: Yeah, look, um, uh,
0: we've had an inkling for a long time and uh, there's been studies you know, in,
1: in, in some of the investment journals that show globally uh, that have shown founder-led businesses tend to tend to outperform. And so we just want to test the hypothesis here and we've, we're going to recrunch crunch the numbers again, but very simply we did the numbers over the last 12 years you know, if you'd owned a basket of founder-led businesses that we sort of developed, that we picked out, and there were most of them on the market. We, we might have missed one or two, but they wouldn't have detracted from the outcome. But basically, uh, if you invested in 2008 in this basket, uh, weighted average basket uh, of, of market cap weighted average, you would be uh, five times your money uh, versus two times your money if you'd just held the market itself. So there's really something to that. Um, And we're we're always looking for um, founder-led businesses. In the early Australian share fund at the moment, um, we'd have about eight names in our 25, 30 stock portfolio would be founder-led businesses. So we're always looking um, for them. It's not foolproof. Uh, It doesn't always work. Um, You know, uh, a good example would be Oriton, uh, which was a, you know, a long-held family business, went broke uh, only, you know, a couple of years ago, went to zero. But... Generally, it's good, and so we're, we're going to do some more work on that and and, and keep developing that.
0: And do you but, think that's because they take a long term, longer-term view around how they allocate capital? They're not allocating it for their three-year contract term. They're thinking, what do I want this business to look like in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time?
1: Yeah, you're spot on, Chris. That's exactly that's exactly why. And and they have real money in the game. They have real yeah. skin. I mean, this is their... Skin
0: in the game is a huge one, isn't it? It's massive.
1: So And it's like their family depends on it almost yeah. you know to the extent their family and their future uh, generation that they think about um, depends on this so my my great story is um, uh, is back in the 90s when I started at perpetual and I began uh, I moved off the debt dealing desk and they said here you can become an analyst and here's a small little stock we want you to look at uh, it's called Reese uh, it's a Victorian based plumbing uh, it had quite a few stores around the you know in Victoria and it was it was growing uh, but look the management don't want to talk to anyone. Uh, you can have a look at it and so look i've looked at that company i started looking at it back then and we own shares in it and i remember, can you remember one you know what the
0: market cap was back then it would have been tiny wouldn't it oh uh, well it
1: had 100 million it always had 100 million shares on issue i think and okay. uh, it was less than you know 200 million at yeah, okay. at that point yeah um, anyway i remember one uh, one half year result and in the this was mid late 90s uh, and the company, uh, the numbers were not, the sales line was good, um, the, the, the gross margin was good, it, you know, it was strong, but everything below that, the costs were through the roof. Uh, you know, employees, uh, sg and very high, and so the profit looked very low, and, you know, the shares sort of sold off, and, you know, everyone's looking at me going, what, you know, what the hell? What the hell? And so I get on the phone and I managed to uh, call up the CEO at the time who was basically the modern-day founder of Reese, Alan yeah. Wilson, uh, and he's now the chairman and his son Peter's the CEO. But back then, he was the CEO. I said, Alan, what's, what's the story? Because up until that point, my whole experience of the market was that companies strived, beg, stole, cheated, if you like. You know That might be a bit mm. extreme, but beg, stole, cheated their way Delivering profit growth every six months to show the market—just really short-term goals, hit my and bonuses, so, things like that. Exactly. Yeah. And so I said to Alan, "What's what's the story?" And he said, "He said Matt, we've got a real opportunity here. I'm investing for the, for you know, for the future." And he he laid out, you know, what the what the you know how he could how he could grow that business, grow the network, and become the biggest player. Uh, in in plumbing wholesale in Australia, and it really struck me at that point. I going, you know, I had I, it really just laid out to me that I'd been thinking about everything so wrong. Uh, you know, everything was about the short term, and it really then was an eye opener to me about investing for the long term culture. You know, building real, building really sustainable businesses. And look, as everyone knows, I think most people know Reese. You know, look at them now. Um, and it's been an amazing business. They've they absolutely dominate here in Australia, and they, they've leveraged that. And now they're in the US, and slowly but surely, we expect them to uh, be really successful in the US.
0: Now, I don't I don't know the Reese story nearly as well as you, other than Wilson's a, a good Carlton people. But at that time in the '90s, when their cost base was growing, was that a time where the bigger competitors were? consolidating their centers and just having fewer centers but bigger ones. And Reese were doing the opposite and expanding and creating lots more centers for plumbers to be able to go and pick up their goods from. Is that what was happening at the time? Yeah, not so much. Really, the big player in the market at the time was Tradelink. Okay. And it's a great –
1: uh, this is a great business study. Yeah. So in, at the time when this, this situation occurred, when I rang Alan and said, what the, what's going on, the uh, Tradelink had double the sales of Reese. Yeah, Uh, Reese was approximately, I think, 400 million. TradeLink were 850 million in sales at that time. So, TradeLink twice the size. Same in profits. TradeLink were making twice the size. Fast forward to today, TradeLink has gone through two separate corporate ownership. It's gone through at least five or six management teams. And its sales today are the same as they were in 1998 850 million. Their profits have halved. Can you believe it? You know, over 20 years. Meanwhile, uh, the sales base of uh, Reese in Australia has gone up sevenfold and profits have gone up 18 fold. So that's the demonstration of, you know, an owner managed business versus a corporate mindset. Uh, You know, Tradelink today's own, it's a small, tiny, well, because of its profits so low, it's a it's a meaningless uh, rounding error in the hmm. in the conglomerate of that is Fletcher Building, and Reese is run by Peter Wilson, as I mentioned, Alan's son, Alan, the executive chairman. So just two CEOs in twenty five years, well, sorry, two CEOs in fifty years, uh, and TradeLink, as I said, you know, management turnover, upheaval. So that's that's the great attraction of a of an owner led founder led business.
0: And so we talk about an edge that that longer term thinking can create for, for founder-led businesses. In terms of funds management or, or in, as an investor, what do you look at as being early's edge when you, you compete you know, on capital markets with, with other funds across Australia?
1: Yeah, I think uh, experience, you know, John and myself experience. And again, that that sort of open uh, way of thinking Surrounding ourselves with good people, and you mentioned a lot of people have come out of Perpetual, good investors, and 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 John and I, you know, we don't take credit for much, but we'll take credit for developing good people below us, and you know, so many people have then gone out to have their, you know, their own successful careers. You know, the guys running Perpetual at the moment, uh, Charlie Lanchester at BlackRock, at John Harbert. So there's been a lot of we've, you know, people have come through, and we've we've uh, we like surrounding ourselves with. With good, talented young people. And then we within the guardrails of our investment process, which is quite conservative, uh, you know, focusing on very conservative balance sheets, um, uh, quality businesses and um, management that we've talked about. And then we put the valuation factor last. So uh, you know, our big mantra is that you don't know what something's worth until you really understand the business. You look at the quality aspects of it. Uh, and, and, the, and the financial framework that it has, the balance sheet, etc. So I think our edge is that we've remained disciplined to that over 25 years. Surrounded ourselves with new, smart thinking, and we and we and we try and refresh our, you know, the teams that we are with over the years. We 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 don't try and get stale, um, uh, and so doing that, uh, and then also. What we've done is, you know, back in the 90s, we used to have 50, 60 stocks in a portfolio. As an active manager today, you can't do that. You've got to be much more. uh, You've got to have higher market, uh, you know, uh, 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 market share in terms of, uh, you know, your deviation from the uh, benchmark. You've got to really be conviction and you've got to have concentrated portfolios. So we've really concentrated to our sort of best ideas. We're not trying to cover the whole market. We're just trying to really focus our energies on on what we find as really attractive companies. Own them. Try not to be scared out of the good ones. You could have been scared out of Reese, um, you know, 100 times in the last 25 years. Uh, And there's periods where you own these stocks and they do nothing for two to three years. And it can be very
0: painful because they're a drag on the portfolio. Uh, And so that must be challenging. So you've got a really high quality business. There must be times in that period where you felt that REESE is now overvalued, or yes. at least certainly not undervalued. But you also must know that if you sell out, it's going to be challenging for you to then buy back in. Is, is that exactly. one of the challenges that you sometimes face?
1: Yeah, it's exactly right, Chris. Yeah, so that and hence why we've hung on to REESE at, uh, at, for for those twenty five years. It's been in every portfolio that I've that I've owned and Premier Investments, another founder led business. Yeah, Solly Lou. Nick Scarley, with Anthony Scarley running that. We've owned that for 20
0: years. Um, Because it is so rare you get an actual business, particularly in Australia, where we're a small, relatively small capital market and small population. It is fairly rare you get a business that's truly great that isn't necessarily going to mean revert on the Australian market, don't you think? If you get one, you've got to respect it.
1: Yeah, you do. And look, they'll go through periods where they will mean revert. I
0: mean, you know, CSL...
1: You know, if you've owned that from uh, for twenty years, you've had some pretty uncomfortable periods in that uh, in that time, um, when uh, the market really misjudged their their sort of longer term plan in plasma collection. And we've seen, you know, you've seen times where the stock's down twenty percent, you know, and things in, in in a lot of these companies. Um, and I guess it goes to this is where a retail investor. Can have a big advantage over a professional investors such as ourselves, where we're judged on a much more frequent basis. Um, but having been around long enough, I really do take that try and take that three year view as best as we can. But a retail investor, they can withstand, you know, big periods of sideways, yeah, big drops, big
0: drawdowns, and just be and be comfortable that they own quality quality businesses. I think the challenge sometimes is when you know, as an investor or a retail investor gets a nickel Explorer that's 10 bagged in six months yeah. and they sort of graph that next to an Amazon and they say, well, we've got the next Amazon here. Yeah. Um, yeah, There's very difference between that and a Reese Plumbing or REA yeah. or, a, you know, a car sales or whatever you want to look at. Um, yeah. It's just understanding the difference between something that's appreciating rapidly, but is probably going to come crashing back down, and something that is one of those longer-lasting quality businesses.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and you're right about you know going back to your mean reversion versus true, true long-term growth uh, players. And look, and you're right in the sense, you know, most companies in Australia, um, because as you say, it's a small market, um, growth is is uh, hard to come by. That you do get mean reversion is is a is a big uh, is a big uh, is a big factor in our in our market
0: and the tech businesses really the international tech businesses have been the, the truly great businesses of the last 20 years that don't mean revert by their nature you know we've we've, we've got afterpay here which has been a little bit in that ill, but generally those businesses where their cost base remains fixed even as their revenues skyrocket there's just not many of them on our market because it's it's not what we do here very uh very well
1: no that's true and um yeah, but having said that, you know, I mean, Amazon. If you've owned Amazon since the, you know, late '90s, you, I think, you know, I've forgotten the stat, but it's well, well, sort of documented that you've had to withstand nearly every year that that stock will fall 20 to 30 percent at some point in, in any given year.
0: And 90 percent once, I reckon. In I reckon the '99, yes, that's right. Yeah, crash. It was yeah. a 90 percent drawdown. So, yeah. so we've, I'm awfully on a bit here, but I'll get back to you talking. Don't Talk me through your investment framework. So you've sort of touched on it. Um, maybe talk me through how detailed that is. And I guess there must be other times where you don't always have a, uh, it's not a private business you're buying. You don't always have a month to do all your DD. There must be times I'm assuming where you buy now and commit to DD ongoing. Is, is that how things sometimes work? If there's a capital raise or something you haven't had weeks and months to get your head around a business, how do you navigate that, um, that road?
1: Yeah, look, going back to our edge, uh, Chris, you know, being around for so long, uh, John, myself, and, you know, Terry in our team, hes he's been in the market for over 12 years, Emma, over 10. We've got a lot of corporate history uh, there and a lot of management history. We know a lot of people. So there's not much, um, you know, there's not many companies we don't have at least a basic working knowledge on. Um, but before we do buy a company, we've got our four-step process. And the, the first one is it's a, it's a big gate for us is financial strength. Basically, balance sheet's got to be strong. Uh, it's a yes or no kind of answer. And really, where you get where most of my problems in the past, are, you know, where I've gotten uh, uh, things wrong and really wrong, is when you get that balance sheet wrong. Because once a balance sheet comes into play, the downside in a in a company can be you know
0: mm. can be
1: a lot. So it's really important for us that financial strength. Um, and this time last year or in March last year, you know, the, our fund outperformed the market because of that financial strength. You know, in March when we had the, you know, it, it, the panic, um, we outperformed, uh, you know, on that, on that uh, as the market drew, drew, drew down. So the second step then is quality of business. And this is where all the work sort of gets done. This is when you're out kicking the tyres, um, you're understanding the industry structure, uh, and really you're looking for changes, I think, particularly in Australia where things look pretty static. You're looking for changes in that in that industry, um, how things are being affected, um, and you know we, we look at uh, businesses such as Wes Farmers and Bunnings, right? You know we we look at we look at conglomerates and think, wow, there's a brilliant business stuck within this conglomerate, and this was three or four years ago, and we were pushing the management team, you know, saying, look, um, let's you should demerge Bunnings if you want shareholder reward. Uh, then demerging Bunnings is a fantastic uh, idea. Uh, you know, we didn't get that. We got Coles demerged, but the effect was the same. Really, mm. Bunnings became a much bigger part of of Wes Farmers. So we're looking at things like that. Can is there sensible ways companies can uh, bring out the quality business to the fore that they may have in a in a um, in a conglomerate kind of structure? Or and something?
0: is that because it's just harder for investors to get a feel for? where that what that value is like when you've got a realestate.com which is a, a brilliant business but it's yep. a, an easy business to understand because it's one main business unit to get your head around that's is it there sometimes hidden value in those conglomerate opportunities because they are by their nature a, a bit messier that's right and you know the, the, a running example at the moment would be
1: tabcorp lotteries you know top 3 business in australia um, but so you know but wagering gets all the sort of uh, issues uh, and, you know, that drove this company, the stock, to $3 uh, recently uh, in the last 12 months. And now, you know, now there's interest in that wagering. But if once that gets liberated, either by via, you know, someone buying wagering or a demerger, we're going to see some great performance, I think, out of that lotteries business uh, as a standalone company. So and how
0: aggressive do you get with your chats with management? Is it sort of a, a suggestion and a fireside chat or does it, does it move into we'll be voting against remuneration and x y and z if, if you don't start to make changes what's what's your sort of approach with with that line of things yeah i think it it of it, yeah we would like to keep things very rational and
1: professional and and you know and this day and age most most company managements and boards get it um we just like to see a bit more urgency sometimes around their around their thinking and it's not just us it's other shareholders uh, you know everyone can see this because again you look at you talk about owner-managed businesses demergers. Yeah. Uh, you know, you do the studies on demergers. It's you know, it's obvious Demergers work. Mm. Um, and so boards boards, you know, ultimately, I think they they get this and they you know they they see the writing on the wall. And but we just like to see a bit more urgency in in some of these things. You know, when you look at Wes Farmers, you look at a share price chart of Wes Farmers. It basically, it was flat from two thousand and twelve to. 2016, 17. Uh, it wasn't until the you know, Rob Scott came in and did a fantastic job of cleaning up the portfolio, selling things at the right time, demerging coals, and the result has been fantastic. Mm. Um, and you know, now they they're sitting absolutely pretty. Wes Farmers, $60 billion company with no debt, effectively. Mm. I mean, you know, that's that's quite extraordinary. And so uh again, be sitting pretty them if a they w- w-
0: got Linus.
1: That would have been good, yeah. And we, we really supported that deal at the time. I said, this looks a very interesting proposition, a very interesting business. Um, they could have maybe been a bit more aggressive and yeah. got hold of
0: that. But anyway, things happen. So we're on to, we are up to number two. What are the other couple of points in your investment? Yeah, so really um, the quality, on? yeah. So that's where all the work gets done.
1: Then thirdly is the management. And so I think I've spoken a lot about founder-led
0: businesses. That's where we really prefer to look. But obviously, there's, there's only a certain universe of those. What are some um, of the nuances when you do speak to management where, you know, whether it's how they speak to their CFO in a meeting or small things you pick up, what are some of the red flags when you do meet with management and you go, Oh, we, we need to scratch the surface a bit deeper here to see if they are what they say. Yeah. Look, I think it goes back to that thousand piece jigsaw puzzle where yeah. how they
1: speak, to, how management speaks to the CFO in a meeting or what they do, what their history is, um, what their track record is of capital management, all little pieces that go to form the uh, form the story, but really, you know, we're not trying to tell companies how to run their day to day business. We would have no idea. It's really about those bigger picture things: that capital management, capital allocation, demergers, um, etc. It's those kind of things that will we we assess. Uh, do they understand it? Do they get that? Uh, will really drive our conviction levels um, in that sense. Oh.
0: I'm always very suspicious of anyone wearing a pocket square. Is that something that earlier have uh, noted in the investment framework? Oh, I'm not
1: going to, you know, I'm
0: not, you know I, won't, uh, I won't exclude myself from all the pocket square wearers out there and
1: suddenly uh, I'll be in a, no, be in a lot good. of trouble.
0: All good. And what about, what about point four on the investment framework?
1: And the last one, um, uh, 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 of course, is valuation. Um, yeah. uh, and this is why I said, we, you know, we come to it last. Because you've really got to understand all those other factors before you can judge what something's worth. Um, and that's where the trade-offs are made, I guess, you know, because we all know what a quality business is. And you've mentioned REA a couple of times. I'd love to own REA, but is buying it on 55 times earnings going to work for me? Yeah. I don't know. It, it's it, I, 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 maybe Maybe it'll work. I don't know. But it's not. Within our framework, that's just not, not not part of our our makeup. We can't get there. Um, love to own it. And we had our, we had the catches mid out this time last year. Um, we got too greedy. We should have bought it. Um, you know, it got to 70, 65, 70 bucks. Uh, that was a gift, obviously, in in hindsight. Um, so it's all about trade-offs, I guess, in that, in that sense. You know, what, what is quality? What will you pay for that quality? Uh, we think the market really un- underpays for balance sheet strength. So I mentioned Wes Farmers, sixty billion dollars, uh, no debt. The market sort of doesn't give any credit. We don't think to balance sheet strength until it's crystallised either through a buyback, um, you know, higher dividends, capital return, or in- or probably at least preferable, but can be valuing in the short run. Uh, and hopefully the long run, but a ac- good acquisition.
0: They will smack them if it looks like they're going to have to raise, though, if you've got the inverse of balance sheet strength and they're going to have to raise, the market will, will mark them down pretty harshly at times. So I guess exactly. avoid, you do avoid that. Yeah. In um, What about just for retail investors? Do you think they should all have some form of checklist? Like you've detailed a uh, your very detailed investment framework that you guys work off, but do you think all retail investors should have even if it's just a basic checklist of things they're they're looking out for or or learnings from past mistakes that they're trying to avoid before they commit to, to allocating capital into a business.
1: Yeah. I think if you're going to be a serious uh, investor with a medium term and you have to be medium term, I mean, it doesn't work otherwise. And you're punting, you're speculating otherwise. So let's, you know, let's call that out and then speculating. That's great. I mean, that's fun. Uh, You know, that's great fun for a portion. Of uh, of 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 your savings of of what you want to invest, I think that's great fun and and go hard for it. You know uh, that's great. Um, but if you're going to be a medium term longer term investor, you've got to work, yeah you've got to have some kind of framework about how you how you think about things um, because otherwise you'll get you know you you you'll you'll move with the wins. you'll move with the headlines you'll be in something and then you'll read something bad about it and you're out because you don't have that checklist that gives you that conviction, uh, on why you own a, own a company. Personally, I think you should just look up the ticker code AASF, <laughs> early Australian share
0: fund, <laughs> and you just put it in that and set and forget and we'll look after it for you. But and just you know, lie on the beach and collect the funds. That's it. What well, um, I'll let you go in a minute, but talk to me about portfolio construction and how you view that. You mentioned that you're quite concentrated and you, you know, I'm assuming with the investment framework you guys have, a lot of similar style companies are going to get thrown up. How do you avoid having a really high level of correlation between the different things you're invested in?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, you know, there's enough there's enough choice and breadth in the in the Aussie market that you can you can get you know uh, quite um, a breadth of uh of, of sort of uh, you know exposure industry and sector exposure and we've got some great companies here in australia you know when you think about some of the quality businesses that we've got on a global stage csl james hardy um aristocrat resmed and we've got some you know companies mm. that really punch above their weight macquarie group uh that really do punch above their weight on the on the global stage so we've got it. we own nearly all those companies that i just mentioned and so that gives some great diversification. I think when you look domestically, the risk you've just got to be a little bit careful of is that nearly every company sells to the consumer. It's mm. a real We're a real B2C kind of market, business to consumer. Um, so always sort of on the lookout for those good B2B businesses that provide just a bit more resilience. Uh, because look, I mean, right now, consumer, what a great place to be. You know, mm. they've got money, they've got a job, interest rates low, Feeling rich because of their house price uh, appreciation—it's fantastic. But it's not always the case, so you've just got to be we're cognizant uh, of just having uh, just watching that exposure to the to the consumer, I guess, because you think you might be in different sectors, but at the end, uh, at the end, you're really relying on the strength of that consumer spending. So that's mm-hmm. the thing we sort of probably keep our, our closest eye on in terms of portfolio construction.
0: Beautiful. Well, that feels like a, as good a place as anywhere to finish. So uh, it's been great, Matt. Really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to following early Funds Management from afar.
1: Thanks, Chris. Much appreciated.
0: This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.